Welcome to our podcast, Multiple Myeloma Morning Commute, Standard Care for the Newly Relapsed Patient. Morning Commute is developed in collaboration with At Point of Care and Projects in Knowledge and is part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from Oncopeptides and Sanofi Genzyme. In this episode, Dr. Ravi Vij and Dr. Thomas Martin discuss treatment of multiple myeloma in patients who have relapsed. Most of these patients are on maintenance therapy, so how do you select the right regimen for them? The good news is that there are many to choose from. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash multiple myeloma one. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Vij is a professor of medicine in the Division of Medical Oncology at the Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. Dr. Martin is a professor of medicine in the Division of Hematology Oncology at the University of California, San Francisco. I am Candace Hoffman, Managing Editor of Morning Commute. Dr. Vij will begin our discussion. Hello, my name is Ravi Vij. I'm a professor of medicine at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. Today I have with me Dr. Thomas Martin, professor of medicine at UCSF in San Francisco, and we're going to be talking about the management of early relapsed multiple myeloma. Welcome, Tom. Thanks for having me, Ravi. So today I think what we have to talk about is how you approach uh, your patients with myeloma, once you see their disease is coming back, most of the patients have been on maintenance therapy these days. And so how do you approach these patients when their disease is coming back? Well, thanks, Robbie, for that question. I I think um, the space in the myeloma field right now is so crowded with medications. It's it's really actually fun to select what we think the best regimen is, especially for first relapse. There's a couple of things that I take in consideration with first relapse. Um, What you initially said is a lot of patients are on maintenance. So if they're on a maintenance-based therapy, it really depends on what that therapy is. And then I would consider them refractory to that therapy. Most of the time, it's lenalidomide. Um, And even if it's lenalidomide at 10 milligrams a day, I call them refractory to lenalidomide, and I try to avoid that. And the second is, is what else they've been exposed to in frontline. Currently, none of us, very few of us, I think, you utilize CD38 antibodies at frontline therapy, and thus it's a great uh, drug to select as part of your regimen um, for early relapse therapy. And in early therapy, I always try to use a triplet-based therapy, a CD38 antibody plus dexamethasone um, and plus a third agent. And the third agent will um, basically be based on what they might be refractory. Um, and if they're refractory to lenalidomide, then I will choose potentially a proteasome inhibitor-based therapy, um, perhaps uh, bortezomib, like in the CASTER trial, so bortezomib, um, deratumumab, and dexamethasone, or I might choose carfilzomib, uh, like in the CANDOR regimen, which is carfilzomib, uh, deratumumab, and dexamethasone. The CANDOR trial just showed that the deratumumab plus carfilzomib regimen was associated with the PFS of right around 28 months for one to three prior lines of therapy, which is quite amazing, actually. But the other option is to do pomalidomide, is to choose pomalidomide. It's an oral medicine, and it's easy. 
And DARE2 MAB plus pomalidomide and dexamethasone, in my mind, is another great regimen to choose as first relapse, even in those that are len refractory. And that also has been um, recently tested in the Apollo trial. Um, that PFS was a little shorter, but it was people who had second or more prior lines of therapy. It was two prior lines of therapy or more. So it was a, a more heavily pretreated, and that's why the PFS was a little shorter. I'm curious, what do you take? What do you choose uh, for your um, first go to and first relapse? I think uh, we think along the same lines. I would say that uh, recently, for patients who have symptomatic relapse, have PET positive relapse, the use of daratumumab uh, with pomalidomide and dexamethasone has been my favorite regimen. And I am starting to use daratumumab with carfilzomib and dexamethasone uh, as well. And I think that it's a little difficult for me to decide uh, sometimes which way to go. I tend to give patients who have very aggressive relapse often the carfilzomib-based uh, combination with daratumumab because uh, you have ready access to IV drugs. Sometimes getting the pomalidomide can take a few uh, days. And then the other thing is that if you don't need that aggressive approach right at the beginning, then you can go with the pomalidomide-based combination, and it really becomes very simple for patients. Uh, once they're in six months, they're just coming in once a month to get, these days, just an injection into the skin, uh, which takes all of five minutes to give, and then uh, they're just taking pomalidomide by mouth at home. So I think it is certainly more convenient. Now, I must say that in my own practice, for patients who have biochemical relapse, I'm uh, using uh, a fair amount of elotuzumab with pomalidomide and dexamethasone as well. And I think that uh, the regimen does, for few patients, produce fairly prolonged responses. And I see little downside in these early biochemical relapse patients to see if one can have some durability with an elotuzumab-based regimen before going to a daratumumab-based three-drug regimen. In few cases where patients really want an all-oral regimen, either because they are older or they're having a biochemical relapse and working and don't want to disrupt their work, I may even try an exazomib-based three-drug regimen. Uh, for They, again, work for usually shorter periods of time than the daratimumab-based regimen. Do you use any elotuzumab or exazomib in your practice? Yeah, that's a really interesting question, especially now when we're on the tails of, uh, hopefully the tails of the COVID uh, crisis. And a lot of patients actually didn't really want to come to the treatment center. Um, and so, yes, we do um, oral exazomib, pomalidomide, and dexamethasone as a triplet. And the other triplet that I actually like, and we published this uh, together with the Moffitt Group in Florida, is pomalidomide oral cyclophosphamide in dexamethasone. So POM cytoxan dex, in my mind, um, is a nice regimen. When we published it um, a few years ago now, probably four or five years ago, the PFS was just under a year for that triplet combination. Um, but for early relapse patients, I, I suspect we'd even get longer. It tends to be a really well-tolerated regimen. Um, I, I think you know when you combine pomalus with cyclophosphamide or pomalus with daratumab, the biggest side effects tend to be uh, blood count suppression. So you just have to watch their blood counts and you have to dose adjust as needed. Um, and often I'm going with right from four to two milligrams of pomalidomide for my dose adjustments with blood count suppression. When I do it, pomalidomide with um, exazomib or sometimes actually with bortezomib, and that was the optimism trial 
Uh, Paul, Paul Richardson present, presented that optimism trial, which was Tom Bortezomib index versus Bortezomib index. They actually saw in first relapse patients an overall response rate of just over 90%. And a PFS that was actually quite good. It was over 16 months. I think it was close to 19 months um, as first relapse. So that's a nice regimen too. You get less blood count suppression when you combine it with those PIs, POM plus a PI. But the thing you always have to worry about is the neuropathy. That's the thing you worry about. So we've talked about, you know, the pace of the relapse, sometimes informing our decision on choice of therapy. Obviously, there are other factors that one takes into account as well. Sometimes, do you take risk stratification, the cytogenetic or the FISH test results of a patient into account when deciding your own uh, second-line regimen? Yeah, that's a really, um, I think, a really important point and an important question. And so if somebody has an adverse cytogenetic um, feature, or fish feature at diagnosis, then that person I am going to um, treat very aggressively. Um, and I wouldn't use elituzumab and I wouldn't use oral regimens. That, those are the patients that I would in fact combine our best regimens, which I think are CD38 antibody with um, um, carfilzomib or pomalidomide, no, no doubt about it. Um, and I probably would uh, try to treat them to get them into as deep a response as is possible. Um, and so, yes, I do try to treat them a little bit more aggressive. If they hadn't had a frontline transplant and they were a transplant candidate, I would consider it after first relapse, I would consider a transplant at that time if I didn't do it uh, frontline for, high, for the high risk group. Certainly. And I think another uh, group of patients that are functionally high risk are those who relapse early. And for them too, I think uh, going and being aggressive is important because I think those who relapse early, though they may sometimes not have the traditional uh, biological characteristics that we associate with uh, high-risk myeloma, they've declared themselves to be high-risk themselves. So um, another question uh, that I would have is that obviously we live in the ivory towers of academia. People out in the community are often faced with uh, individuals that are in their 80s, I've seen, obviously, patients even in their 90s with multiple myeloma. And there, I think that sometimes you have to give up some efficacy for better tolerability and convenience. So do you see much role for two-drug regimens in that population? Um, I do use two-drug regimens uh, occasionally um, based on what I think is going to be the most toxic of the, of the um, therapies. So, for instance, in a triplet, there's often dexamethasone. Sometimes in those 80-year-olds plus, they can't tolerate dexamethasone. They, in fact, may have um, um, confusion, difficulty sleeping, um, high sugars, et cetera, even blood pressure problems where I think they can't tolerate it. And yes, then I might just go with the, the IMID and um, the CD38 antibody. And if, if they're really frail, I actually think almost everybody can just receive a CD38 antibody as a single agent. Um, I think it's extremely well tolerated. They do have to get a little steroid initially to get, get over the infusion-related reactions, but I'm have them off steroids by four weeks after starting that CD38 antibody. How about you? What, what do you use in that scenario? I totally agree with you. I do uh, myself use a fair amount of single-agent daratumumab. Sometimes if I, after a month, see that the response is not achieving that desired level, our patients are starting to break through. At that point, I may throw in a lower dose of one of the other drugs. And in that case, uh, 
It is often, again, pomalidomide. I tend to use the pomalidomide at two milligrams in this older population, uh, especially for, right from the get-go. So I think that uh, our uh, approaches, I think, fairly align in that regard. In terms of other uh, factors that we take into account, obviously the, the comorbidities of patients are important. Fortunately, in the early relapse setting, we often don't have to worry about diminished marrow reserve but uh, what are the other things that you often look at uh, in terms of choosing your regimen? I think a couple of the important ones. One is uh, what their creatinine clearance is and what their kidney function is. Um, I think some people um, need to have dose reduction of medications. I think the biggest one really is lenalidomide. Is when they're on lenalidomide, you have to worry about what their creatinine clearance is. And I usually start low, like you said, on, on some of these agents and go up if I can, as long as their blood counts can tolerate it. The second is blood counts. After uh, several lines of therapy, the blood counts begin to become problematic, but you, I think we need to use growth factor support and we need to use um, you know, Neupogen as needed, Epogen as needed, and you can even use a um, platelet cytokine as needed for these patients. Um, and the biggest one in my mind is mental status, is, um, I do think the imids affect the metal status as people get older, and for sure the steroids affect the metal status. And I think that we have to watch uh, closely. And lastly, the neuropathy. I do think bortezomib, it's hard to use a lot of bortezomib after you've used it for the first couple of years, just because they do have neuropathy. Um, and so I think you have to switch to non-neuropathic agents at that time. I totally agree. So I think uh, we see here that there are a number of patient-related, disease-related, uh, and uh, other factors that we have to take into account. So we are already uh, personalizing our therapies in multiple myeloma, I guess. Thank you, Tom. It, uh, it was a great discussion. And I think that uh, we uh, are hopefully going to see uh, major advances that will change how we practice in early relapse setting in the years to come. But yes, it will get even more uh, challenging as to how to choose our treatments, I think. Thank you very much. Thank you. Remember, to receive your credit and evaluate this program, please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash multiple myeloma one. For all the episodes in this six-part series, please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash multiple myeloma. Thank you for joining us today.